Hi guys, it's Annie McDonald, physio and strength conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have the pleasure of speaking to CC Murray, a speed coach who has been making waves at Spellman Performance and also at More Her Speed, a female coaching resource. On today's episode, we'll be digging into her expectations versus reality as a female coach working with elite athletes. We'll also be discussing how she assesses technical versus physical capacity in speed-based running athletes. And finally, we'll be talking about relationship building of athletes and how, and more importantly, why a group of young athletes that she coaches are willing to attend sessions incredibly early in the morning with her. There is lots to unpack in this episode, so I've got no doubt you'll enjoy it. Today's episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard. The Nordboard has become the gold standard for assessing field-based hamstring strength. By combining advanced sensors, real-time data visualizations, and cloud analytics, the Nordboard helps practitioners to accurately measure, monitor, and train individuals' hamstring strength or imbalances. To learn more about the Nordboard, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. Inform Performance is a proud partner of Humac Norm by CSMI. Are you using your Cybex, Biodex, or Humac Isokinetic system to its fullest potential? Most machines are used 90% for training and 10% for testing. If this is not you, check out the free online course Isokinetics 101 for the classroom by CSMI. In 90 minutes, you will learn how Isokinetic machines are used in the clinic for testing and to improve range of motion, stability, control, and strength. If you need CEUs, earn eight CEUs by signing up and completing our full online course, Isokinetics 101 Online. This course is approved for PTs, PTAs, and ATCs. To find out more, visit humacnorm.com and head to resources. You're listening to Informed Performance with me, Andy McDonald, and here is today's episode with CC Murray. CC, welcome to the show. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Just to kick off, in case any listeners haven't come across you just yet, would you be able to kind of outline your humble beginnings, wherever they were, and, and kind of bring us up to the, the current day of coaching and, and what you've done along the way? Yeah, 100%. Um, so my name is CC Murray. Um, I am a speed coach. Uh, I work with Les Spellman and Spellman Performance. Um, we are kind of based out in Southern California. We have a couple coaches in San Diego, a couple in Orange County. Um, and that's kind of how I really got connected uh, with the team. Um, I kind of started in physical therapy. So I, I worked in a, in a physical therapy office pretty much all throughout college and, and gained a lot of useful experience there and a lot of my time management skills and just uh, organization skills definitely come from that and and my baseline and knowing the body and know how how the body moves in space and that kind of thing. Um, But I think I just always knew that physical therapy just wasn't my speed. Um, I I always just, you know, wanted something fast paced and high stress as crazy as it sounds, but I think I work better in that environment. so, you know, at that office, I, I just kind of connected a lot with the athletes and a lot specifically with, with the football players there. And, you know, I just kind of started 
going to their practices and and talking to their coaches and and just kind of being around and and sitting in on some of their their practices and things like that. And I eventually kind of got an opportunity to um, coach my own seven on seven. So I was a part of a, a seven on seven organization, and that's where kind of like my football niche. Uh, took me. Um, So I was just, I was kind of head down in that and I enjoyed it so much and and loved what I was doing with that. So I knew that that was, you know, more my path. And I happened to be, you know, working with um, an NFL guy who I met his speed coach when I was working with him. And just so happens that, you know, we connected, we connected afterwards and he was like, Hey, you know, I love your work. I love, I love what you do. Uh, let me know, you know, if you ever want to want to connect in the future and work. And so um, that's kind of kind of where I got started. And he was like, hey, you know, I know you haven't done a lot of speed, but um, your work ethic is is unmatched. And, and I would love to just kind of have you have you learn and 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 progress with the team. And and so I did. I, I saw that vision pretty early on. And and, you know, speed is I still feel like it's fairly new. Like for me, I was, I was a mediocre athlete in high school and, and speed was never really a thing. There wasn't really speed training, um, when I was in high school. So there's been, you know, a lot of research to be done, a lot of learning to be done, a lot of, a lot of bad reps to be made. Um, but I think that all that has kind of given me a lot more confidence now, um, in my coaching and, and just kind of the, the journey that I've taken. Cause it's, it's been far from linear, but it's definitely been rewarding for sure. And what is your, what's like a typical day or week? What are your kind of like day-to-day coaching activities like at the moment? Yeah. So, um, a lot of our, you know, consulting clients are, are high school teams. So, uh, they bring us on for a, a certain training block and we'll come in, you know, once or twice a week, work with the team, uh, generally for like eight to 12 weeks. So, um, usually once a week I'm, I'm at different, I'm at different schools or, you know, different soccer clubs. I have some private training clients as well that, you know, is kind of a mixture of like elite high school kids and, um, like college commits. So, um, a fairly, you know, diverse group and, and different sports that I work with and different athletes that I work with. And, and that's been a, a really cool process also, because like I said, kind of coming into from the football lane and just kind of expanding into different sports has been a really great experience for me. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we spoke last week before we did this episode. And one of the things we were talking about was um, the universal speed rating that you're involved in. Can we dive straight in and t- can you talk us through what that is and kind of why coaches should be aware of it? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, during COVID, it was like, (laughs) we couldn't find any field to work on. We were getting kicked off of fields. We were getting the cops called on us if we would try to get on a field. And um, so we were like, well, you know, we're sitting around like, what are we going to do? You know, we we still got to work. So we were trying to think about what can we do as coaches to make sure and, you know, provide value if we're not able to coach in person. So we um, kind of created the universal speed rating as, you know, uh, one, a programming tool, but also a speed tracking journey. So any athlete can go and, you know, submit their time into the universal speed rating, or they can get tested at one of our uh, partner facilities um, and then get a, get a verified score. So uh, we really wanted to make it, um, you know, an encompassing and 
you know, inclusive platform for coaches and for athletes to not only track their journey, but be able to compete and have that, that factor. And, you know, if a, if a kid was in Hawaii and didn't have those resources that they would still be able to, to train, like we're training out here um, and, and be able to do it wherever they're at. We'll get into some like nitty gritty technical speed stuff shortly, but I know you're also doing something uh, called More Her Speed. Do you want to talk us through what that is? Because I think that'll probably lead us into like one of the big topics that that we want to talk about today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's kind of, you know, been my idea and my project for a while. Um, with More Her Speed, I think that the main goal originally was just kind of to get exposure on the board and, and put other women on the map. Um, there's been a lot of, of needed progress for, for women in this field for a long time, but it's not always easy to find. So I wanted to give credit where it was due and be able to highlight different women in different areas of sport and really just be able to share resources. So, um, to start, I kind of launched it as a, as a weekly newsletter that that one isn't specific or isn't exclusive to women. Um, you know, it could be, could be anyone, man, woman, adult, child, whatever. Um, but I do include a monthly female spotlight. So from that, I was getting a lot of really good feedback and I was getting so many questions and, and emails and DMs just kind of relating to my journey and, and how I got to where I was. And, and I just realized like, you know, if there are this many coaches or, or aspiring coaches that have the same kind of questions, it would be a, a disservice to not share some of that knowledge with a with a larger group. So from the newsletter, I created a membership of all women in sports where we kind of have a shared platform to just connect and share ideas and questions and, and struggles. And um, it's been really rewarding to watch people connect even even outside of me. So, you know, I don't <laughs> I don't have all the answers. Um, so I think that adding women from different backgrounds, whether that's strength or, you know, sports specific coaches or, you know, even agents or internal business uh, women was really important because it can just give a lot better perspective to their experiences so, you know, I didn't create it just for women who are already established and, and successful in their field. Um, I really did it for, for women that are also just passionate in the space or for interns that may not know exactly what direction they want to take, but they, they know that this is where they want to be. Um, and to be honest, I, I really did it because I wish I had something like it when I had first gotten started. I didn't really have any of that raw transparency and honesty about really what this profession would be like and um, how hard it can be at times. And I think that if I had a network of, of resources like this, you know, five years ago when I was getting started, then it probably would have saved me a lot of a lot of doubt and a lot of backpedaling trying to decide if I could make it through or not. What were your expectations? Like I this is something that as a guy I never had to think about. And I know plenty of women that work in sport, but equally I've met people along the way who work in gyms or work in teams, uh, maybe at schools or something, or, but they don't think they can necessarily get into like the, the big teams or they, they don't think they can carve a niche into professional sport. Um, they think there's going to be too many barriers. What, what was your kind of experience of that or your expectations? Um, 
there is a lot of barriers. And I think that it's, it's harder. It was obviously harder for women. You know, um, I think that, that I came into it, I came into it with, with no expectations, to be honest, I came into it, um, and didn't, there wasn't, a, there wasn't a lot of women doing it. And there still isn't a lot, but there, there's more. But, you know, five or six years ago, I, I couldn't, I couldn't find a, a good enough resource that I could trust in and that I could, I could find value in to lead me in the right direction. I kind of really, really went into it blind. Um, I, I happened to just connect with the right people and connected with people that trusted in me and believed in me and, and put their faith in me enough to know that I was always down to put in the work and I was always down to, to grind it out no matter what that meant. Um, and you know, starting in physical therapy and kind of transitioning, I think it was a smooth transition, um, just because I was already kind of involved in that space. Um, not directly with, with a more high performance sector, but I just was around sports a lot and, um, around coaches a lot. And so, you know, when, when coaches started considering like, Hey, who should we bring on for this position? Um, you know, I, I was, I was one of those looks and, I think that that really just making yourself present and known and resourceful and just asking the right questions was was my biggest um, foot in the door, because I think that that's what people are scared to do. I think people are scared to ask questions and are scared to not know and uh, are scared to be wrong. And I never was. I was never scared to be wrong. I was never scared to fail. Um, cause I knew that I would continue to fail and I still continue to fail all the time. So I think that that's a, that's a major barrier is, is being, being afraid to fail. Um, and for the most part, I'm just not because I've, I failed a lot and I know what it feels like and I know, um, I know what it looks like. So moving forward, you know, I feel like, that's that's one thing that I continue to do is I continue to learn and that's the best thing that coaches can do as well is just kind of continue to learn and and always be teachable and coachable and you know like I said just networking and and being yourself and being around the right people was was huge for me and, and actually a lot of what you're saying there you know we kind of went into that from a gender perspective but actually that's kind of universal I think everyone everyone that's trying to get in has to be the squeaky wheel I think that's the saying but um, you know, everyone has to kind of uh, be resourceful and be hungry, talk to people, be very sincere about wanting to help people. And, um, you know, you, you need that drive and hunger early on, especially, um, you know, you, you now work with a lot of NFL players and, you know, from a sport perspective, that's an incredibly male dominated sport, both from obviously a player, but also uh, a staff perspective. Uh, you've got a good reputation as a coach, but I'm, I'm wondering kind of, how was it earlier on, like with your first few, you know, pro male athletes, how did it go in terms of like respect, rapport, confidence as someone who hasn't played in the NFL, you know, or played collegiate football or something, the things that they're used to with their, you know, maybe their male strength coaches or the people they usually deal with? <laughs> um, I think a lot of my confidence honestly comes from getting thrown in the fire and, and figuring my way out. Um, I think the first year that I really started, started working with, 
with combine athletes and with NFL players, I, I really was, like you said, I, I just was resourceful. That was it. That was, what was all I was there to do. Really. I was there to stretch anybody if needed. I was there to do recovery if needed. I was there to, um, set up and break down and answer questions and ask questions and monitor readiness. And I really just kind of that, that year that I spent was, so crucial because that's where I learned to, to build my best relationships. Um, and so starting off of that first year, once I, you know, continued on off season after off season, after off season, these guys continue to see me progress and see me stick around. You know, we've had a, a bunch of interns that the schedule is just really, really hard for them. And it's, and it's tough. And, and a lot of them, you know, can't, can't keep that pressure. And, and I understand that. Um, but I think that them seeing me year after year and continue to grow my responsibilities and grow my role to the point where now I, I run NFL offseason groups by myself, um, that there was no question or there was no lack of respect when it got to that point because they saw the work that I put in the previous years. Um, and when I come across new clients, um, you know, it's, it's funny. My, my NFL guys and my collegiate guys are, are my easiest group to work with. I don't, there usually isn't a lack of respect, um, due to, I probably wouldn't be in that position and, and running that group by myself if, if I wasn't deserved to be there. So that's not, that's not really, um, you know, my problem group or anything like that. But, um, I think that knowing the line between, when to be professional, when to joke around, when to lay the hammer down, when to, you know, make jokes and, and do all that. Um, it really just comes down, down to reading the room. And I have a very good gauge for when I can joke around and when I need to be professional. And I think that coming into this, I, I told myself, you know, there's, there's lines that I just can't cross and that I won't cross working in this field. And I picked that side and I picked the side of being professional and of, you know, maintaining my image and, and maintaining my role that I never wanted to falter from that. And, um, you know, that, I, that, that comes with its own struggles for sure. But um, once I decided that there was really no looking back, I knew that, you know, I had to, I had to put myself in a position to where they were going to respect me or, nobody was going to take me seriously. Let, let's get into some some speed stuff. This podcast is way overdue having a, a good speed person like yourself on. So let's get into some of the kind of technical aspects. Um, when you're working, you know, whether it's football or, or any other sport or sprinters, whatever the kind of speed-based athlete is, when you're working with them, how do you personally approach kind of assessing them in terms of technical or physical needs? And you can answer this as one big, long, two-part answer if it's easier. Uh, that's a good question. Um, so obviously, there, those are those are two kind of s- not separate things. They do coincide. But from the physical side, um, it's truthfully pretty rare for an athlete to have a, a completely sound physical base, um, especially, you know, when working with a, a younger population, for example, you know, there, there are going to be some athletes that, that may just need to get stronger. Um, but generally speaking, athletes will fall into either a, a more force-based bucket or a more velocity-based bucket. 
And within that, we can kind of, you know, look at where that force is generated from, from a physical or a technical perspective. So we can do that through assessment, like you said, with, um, with a force velocity profile. So that's going to look at the properties and the actual breakdown of the sprint itself and the athlete's ability to produce force and in what, in what direction. So um, horizontal force versus vertical force and looking at that, you know, from acceleration all the way up into, into velocity. So once we have that down, um, from a programming standpoint, we can kind of attack, you know, those individual, um, prescriptions and programming with, uh, a load velocity profile. So that's another assessment that we do that'll basically determine the athlete's optimal training load. So, you know, an athlete is only hitting their their peak power output for a very short period of time, a fraction of a second of their run. Um, so if we can, if we can hone in and determine that load for that individual athlete, um, then we can, you know, target that app output for a longer period of time. Um, so even if you have two athletes who have the same body weight or, you know, even two athletes that run the same speed, load velocity profile is going to determine if the individual athlete has a higher acceleration or a higher velocity rate and and then can be kind of trained accordingly, uh, depending on which bucket that they fall into. So, uh, then, you know, and then on the technical side, I think that I think that a lot of people look at speed through a very technical lens at first. And, and though that's obviously a very important piece of our model, as far as, as far as programming a session, you can't attack five technical aspects at a time. If you've trained athletes, you know, you'll learn quickly that, that over cueing them and giving them multiple pieces to think about at one time, it's just too much stimulus for them. So if you determine a technical piece to attack and, focus on that emphasis, you know, for the day or for the week or, you know, for that training session, then it's going to simplify the response a lot for the athlete. So whether that be projection or ground contact times or switching or, you know, whatever, whatever performance indicator that, that you want to target, um, you can then kind of hone in a little bit more on the technical drilling. Yeah. You mentioned kind of profiling them via force velocity when you're when you're looking at like a technical aspect that can sometimes be um you know the reason for what why you see what you see technically could also be you know like a local capacity thing in a certain muscle or or around a certain joint do you guys profile local to certain joints as well so moving away from the force velocity like plyo driven tests do you do you go into like your high force ISO tests and more like localized tests? Um, not not with everybody, but when you see that kind of maybe anatomically driven technical thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I know you wanted to talk a little bit about tech, which which brings up a great point. We, um, you know, we have utilized the the force plates a lot to kind of focus on the the force output scale, and uh, we kind of experimented a lot with our NFL offseason guys and our NFL combine guys this year. Um, we did used a lot of Alex Natera's work on his ISO testing. Um, and basically it, it kind of, you know, mimics the the positions that you're going to be in run t- running and, you know, related to sprinting, what kind of ISOs that we can, that we can look at and how much force is being generated at each of those joints. So 
We used, uh, you know, a, a hip ISO test. We used a knee and ankle. We used a mid thigh pole. Um, and that gave us a lot of really good insight for what areas they might be weak at or where their imbalances might be or where they may have had an injury that might be, you know, holding them back technically. Um, so that gave us a lot of really good feedback on that side. Um, and then, you know, we pre and post tested to see what changed. And so that was a, a, a really good metric for us to use. So um, ISOs have been really key for us and, um, and definitely kind of tapping into that technical side. Obviously, like symmetry is easy for everybody to grasp, uh, you know, why you would look at that. Um, but everybody always wants to know the kind of key metrics that you look at. So I'm just going to I'm going to ask you the most annoying question in the world of like, is there any kind of key standards anywhere, whether that's force, velocity, strength? Is there um, standards that you're looking for that for you are more meaningful? I'm I'm going to get asked if I don't ask you this question, why I didn't. So I have to ask you the the metric question. But is there standards that you look at essentially? Um, there's a lot of standards. Yeah, uh, I think it depends on on the group that we're working with and what's the most meaningful um, and what we can even have the power to manipulate. Um, so we look a lot, obviously, at, at ground contact time, at air time. We look at both of those in acceleration and in max velocity. Um, we're going to look at triangular velocity. We're going to look at um, you know, they're, they're, they're obviously their peak speed reached. So their peak speed in 10 yards versus that later 10 so that we're getting, um, some insight to their acceleration capabilities and their max velocity capabilities. So, um, again, I think it, it's dependent on the group and the athlete and, you know, realistically for, for a younger population or, you know, non-elite level clients, not that they're any less important, but, um, there's just, there's going to be less of the, less of the technical aspect and, and more of, of really just getting that stimulus in for them. Um, and you know, I get asked all the time, what's the, what's the easiest way to, to run faster. And I, I'll tell them straight up, you, you run fast more often. Um, and that I think proves true a lot for, for some of that younger population and, you know, ones that, it's, it's going to be a little bit harder to manipulate technically because a lot of those athletes are, are going to need to develop, you know, a strength base. Um, so there is, there's tons of metrics that we look at and, um, whether that's in relation to sprinting or even into, you know, injury risk assessment and those kind of things. So depending on our goal, we're going to look at, we're going to look at different metrics for sure. Obviously, like, you know, you could look at sprinters as being in different phenotypes as to whether they're like, you know, big high force producers, more elastic, you know, the style of the style of sprinting, if you kind of say that. Is there is there minimum standards that you ever want in any tests um, or is the testing more this monitoring piece for you assessing your programming? And, are, you know, did the program that you set out to give the athlete, did it change the metric that you want? You see what I mean? Like I, I, people sometimes want the, you know, what's the lowest score you'd want for this or what do you expect here beyond just looking at whether your program changed accordingly? Yeah, I think it's both. I think, um, you know, when you have, when you have a certain training block, like for example, if I'm, if I'm going to a high school for eight weeks or if I'm going and, and training NFL combine athletes for eight weeks, if I take my, my combine group specifically, I only have eight weeks to manipulate some of these metrics. And, you know, so that's why initial assessment, 
it is important. And that's why continuing and monitoring assessment is even more important. Um, so we, we test all the time without the athlete even knowing it, um, even just down to like a daily readiness and, or a CMJ or, or something that they don't realize is necessarily a test, but we're going to use it kind of one to see where they're at, maybe on a readiness scale. And that's going to manipulate our programming. Um, and two, to just kind of see how far away they are from their norm, you know? So, so when we get down to like the last couple of weeks, but right before leading up to combine, um, you know, if they're not hitting, even just in their CMJ, if they're not hitting, you know, 90% of, of, of their max, of their max, uh, jump height, then we're going to change their program completely. You know, there's, I think some of, some of these cases are, are time sensitive and case sensitive. Um, and, you know, is going to change by case to case basis. So, you know, what I do if I have a group for an entire year is going to be a lot different from what I do with a group for eight weeks. So, you know, where if I'm focused on an athlete hitting certain ground contact times to, um, you know, make them run a better 40, and that is my goal, then that's going to change my program and my prescription a little bit than if I'm working with a group all year round. We um we mentioned tech briefly. Um, you know, you you referenced kind of force plates. Is there any, what other kind of toys in the toy chest do you guys use um, tech wise with speed athletes? Yeah, um, you know, I think we've been really fortunate to have experimented and been exposed to a lot of a different tech and hardware because uh, it is incredibly useful. When we were first starting out, we we used to literally and, and manually write out what our intended volume was for each session and, and track it by hand. So um, utilizing tech like, like GPS or lasers has obviously been a huge factor into uh, one, our assessment, and also, like I said, our monitoring. So for most of our, our testing processes, using GPS or lasers to give us a baseline for where athletes are at and you know, then be able to, to kind of track that journey um, is huge. So not only for, you know, their, their journey itself, but just like you said, to kind of see the success of the program and see what works and what didn't. Um, it's also a good tool for, for competition, particularly with younger athletes, them, you know, seeing lasers set up or, or, you know, having a GPS on and knowing that they ran faster than their teammate is, is a great buy-in process for, for a coach as well. And, and makes it, you know, a more gamified experience for the athletes. Um, so I think dependent on the athlete or group, we might put on GPS for maybe the entire session uh, and use metrics that are going to be more indicative of what they're going to be experiencing, you know, during game. So our goal isn't just to have an athlete run faster for our hour long session, you know, um, but how they can actually pay, play faster in the game. So, you know, using player load metrics and, you know, number of accelerations and, and decelerations and things like that, that can give us a little more insight to, to what they need to be working on to, to actually play faster in competition. I think, I think it's pretty parallel to the gym because in the gym, you always hear strength coaches, um, you know, more pragmatically saying you don't need to turn a player into a weightlifter. The weightlifting is for performance and uh, injury changes um it's the same with speed isn't it like you don't want to just create the world's most perfect sprinter and an nfl player they need to be able to play the game and repeat their sprints so you know outside of gps and lasers because those are great and i think that um you know especially when when working with 
athletes who are coming to you to get faster, there is um, a huge power in in something that you can give them and data that you can give them and in progress that you can give them um, so that they can get a gauge and um, so that you can get a gauge as well. But, you know, we've used, we've utilized a, a huge amount of data, like I said, from, from the force plates with Hawkins um, and hardware, like output sports, uh, just to give us some insight, um, you know, for where they're at from, from a force output perspective and, and how that obviously relates to sprinting as well as, as well as all the monitoring. So, you know, I think that there's, of course, pieces that, you know, you can get away with not being absolutely necessary to your program, but it has definitely helped us and and given us a lot more feedback to to influence our training prescriptions for sure. I'm, I'm curious, which, is there any parts of your job with speed athletes that you're still chipping away at very manually with pen and paper is there any you know obviously uh vbt force plates uh lasers gps has made a huge difference what is there anything that you're stuck doing on pen and paper um i'm always right i feel like i'm always writing something down um and mostly that that comes from from my own personal just kind of continued education and you know, if I see something in a session, like I always have a little notebook on me. Um, and I keep that with me for every session. And so sometimes I might, you know, mid session, pull it out and just write down something that I'm, I make sure that I want to look into later, or I make sure that I want to ask the athlete about later. Um, so I would say that like pen and paper, the only, the only like testing or assessment stuff that I'm writing down is I, if, if they're running through lasers or running GPS, then I'll write down their speeds so that they can go and look at it. Um, but pen and paper (laughs) has mostly just become note taking more than anything now, because, um, you know, we do have, we do have amazing technology that has been able to help us and, you know, we can export all that data and we're using stuff, you know, um, equipment like 1080, you know, the 1080 sprint is, is incredible. Um, and, you know, that, that stores all your information for you. Most of the tech that we use stores all that data for you. And then that's, I think where a lot of the, the coaches don't know or are unfamiliar with what to do with it from there. It's like, okay, well now that we have this data, what do we do with it? Um, so that's where, you know, we kind of come up with our own processes of, Hey, there's a thousand metrics that you can take from most of these GPS units, but what's actually important and you know, what, what's the deliverable back to the athlete that makes it easily digestible for them. Yeah. No, the, re- the reason I ask, and uh, I really agree with you is we, we had a recent episode with Raf Brandon and he was talking about, you know, it's great to collect data, but data needs context. And I think, you know, even the data points that you collect on any given day, there's a context behind it. You know, if they're, feeling great and the scores look good that's context if they don't feel as good or something sore or they've got doms or they're stiff or whatever the kind of change in quality is there's a context behind the data you know especially when you look at that data you know weeks or months down the line and you look at the backlog just looking at the numbers in their raw form is um it's tough to get the full picture if you haven't made those notes and you haven't got that um qualitative kind of story behind it at the same time yeah we um even with a couple of our athletes, we'll, we'll do, you know, like a daily wellness, daily wellness questionnaire in the morning before training. And that, like I said, will, will give us an insight to what that day's program will look like. If everybody's, you know, on a, 
on a 10% fatigue score and readiness score, then, you know, we're not, we're not going to run max velocity on every guy. Um, and then just kind of, like you said, just collecting that data over time, you're able to compare it to, to other metrics. Like, Hey, when they're, when, when they're, fatigue score was the best when their readiness score was the best. That's when they ran the fastest. That's when they jumped the highest. Um, so it's, it's good to make those correlations and, and have, you know, some actual data to, to back that just so that, and, and it's, and it's important to share with the athlete as well. You know, we told them, Hey, it's not fun for, especially when you get, you know, to, to elite level, these guys don't want to fill out a 10 question questionnaire every morning. You know, they think that they have better stuff to do. So I think that when you can show them like, Hey, we were doing this for a reason. And, you know, on, on this day, you felt the best, you ran the fastest and you jumped the highest. And, and it, you know, like I said, I think it, it builds more trust in, in your program and in your processes when you can kind of show them some of that data. Um, I'm, I'm aware of time, but w- one thing I really wanted to squeeze in was, and we only kind of touched upon this when we first connected, was, um, you know, beyond, you know, breaking into fields and tracks and places where you can run athletes. Uh, you, you were telling me about how early some of your athletes uh, will will turn up to these um, running spaces. <laughs> can you talk us through kind of your, you know, give us the backlog of this story in terms of like the, the athletes that are training at these crazy times and why they do it for you. Cause I, I thought it was a great story. <laughs> yes. Uh, that would be my, my loyal 5am group. Um, you know, I, I really had just a, a crazy idea to just work out by myself at 5am one, one morning. And it happened that the night before um, one of our trainings with one of my groups got canceled because of the rain. Um, so they had missed that session and I was going to work out the next morning anyway at 5am. So in my head, I'm like, let me just tell these kids that they need to come. And that's, that's going to be their second session for the week. And, um, you know, I, I didn't phrase it to where I necessarily gave them a choice, but I called, you know, these 10 kids at, at nine 30 at night and told them to, to pull up to the field the next day at, at 5. AM and, and all of them showed up. Um, and these are, these are high school kids that woke up at, at four in the morning to get there. So, um, I think from there it, it was, it was cold. It was dark. It was early. It was not fun. Um, and it ended up being everyone's favorite session. It has been that first session at 5am with that group was, you know, one of my favorite sessions to date. And now it has become like everybody's favorite session of the week. And that's a session that none of those kids miss as crazy as it sounds. Um, but I think that it has, it has created such a good culture, um, between, between me and them and between each other. Um, I think that, it's been so dope to watch some of these athletes that don't know each other and don't go to the same school. And some of them don't even play the same sport to come together. And, you know, now they're, they're such good friends and they love training with each other and they love training with me. And, um, it has shown me and given me a lot of confidence, um, because they are, they are my most loyal group. It has been the most fulfilling group of of my entire career. Um, up to this point, because they are so bought in that it doesn't matter if people tell them that they're crazy for training with a girl or people tell them that they're crazy for training at 5am or 
if somebody else tries to get them to do a speed workout that isn't mine, um, they just won't do it. And um, to me, that that has that has put a lot of faith in in me as a coach um, and just my relationship building with them. What do you you know? The million dollar question is: What do you think is the 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 biggest factor or factors that has enabled you to get teenage athletes out of bed for a five a.m. session? Because that's um, it, it, as good a story as it is. That's no mean feat, and there's a reason behind that. What, what do you think are the key things that are, are getting them up? And um, you know, how have you done that essentially? Because there'll be people listening thinking, "How has she done that? How do you get athletes that early at that age range?" Um making the session a, a good time as, as best as I can for it, for those conditions. Um, you know, I, I, I can talk about this a little bit later as far as just, just kind of building those relationships. But, um, I think that it's important, uh, to be relatable to athletes. I think that there is, you know, a fine line between, being an athlete's friend and being an athlete's coach. Um, and, and I'm not there to be their friend, but I also do want to make it an experience that they're going to learn. They're going to get better. They're not going to get hurt and they're going to have fun. So as long as I can hit all those boxes, um, and make the session worthwhile for me, for them and for their progress and, and just kind of their betterment uh, as an athlete, then, um, I think that, that the, the proof is kind of there already, you know, they see their improvements and, and they know um, that depending on that work that they put in, that they're going to get better, then there's nothing I can't tell them at this point that they won't do. I was going to say, I'm, I'm really aware of time with this episode, but where where's the best place for people to f- um, find you? Obviously, undisclosed locations for tracks at five in the morning, but you know, in terms of online and your normal activities, where can people find you? Yeah. Um, my Instagram is CC Murray underscore, I believe. Uh, my Twitter is CC Murray. Um, I can, um, send out the, the newsletter link. I have my newsletter that goes out every single Tuesday. Um, like I said, Instagram, Twitter, email, best way to reach me. Um, I'm, I'm doing my best to get better at social media. Um, so any, any of those I will usually get to, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm always down to connect and network. I think that it has been so powerful and that has been, you know, one of my biggest tools is, is connecting with good people and, and people putting me in good positions and, and likewise me putting them in, in good positions. So I'm always, I'm always down to connect for sure. Is there anything coming up, uh, further down the road that, you know, you guys have coming up or you have coming up that you want to draw people's attention to? Is there anything, anything we can do spoiler alerts or plugs for before you uh, get out of here? <laughs> uh, there's a lot in the works for the whole team. I think that, um, you know, putting everyone on a team and and putting each individual person on is, is huge. So, you know, we are all under Spelman performance, but we all have, you know, our own courses. We all do, um, you know, I have my membership. JP has, you know, his, his deceleration courses. We all have courses, um, that we, you know, kind of, kind of work together on. So definitely more educational courses. I will have a good amount of announcements coming out on the more her speed side, as far as events and things like that. Um, and yeah, just we, that's our, that's our, our main goal as, as a, as a company and as a team is, 
you know, we, we put out free game all day, every day on social media. That's all we do. So I think that, you know, us holding information in, um, would be a disservice. And, and I think that everybody eats. So, um, yeah, we're always, we're always trying to put out new, new information. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to get to know you on the, on the show and talk last week as well. So thank you. Uh, thanks for giving up your time today. Thank you. I appreciate it.